0: Hello, my name is Connor, and I'm Jason, and you're listening to the Amazed and Perplexed Podcast. This episode is part two in our series on death, and so if you're jumping in now and you want to hear where we started, you can go back to last week's and get caught up that way. Today, we're going to be interacting with a passage that is is very familiar to all of us. It's found in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me When you have come into your kingdom, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So, what amazes
1: me about this passage, if you look at the other gospels uh, that record this, they don't record the interaction that Jesus has. It says they're hurling insults at him, and this gives us not a competitive view, but a, a deeper view because it is true this man is hurling insults and i just think if i am condemned to death and it's completely unjust even if i have a sense that god is going to do something greater where is the retaliatory spirit in jesus mm. where is him saying at the very least son you're stupid uh you know e- even in kindness saying you're ignorant to showing stay in your lane you know you you don't know what you're talking about this one that's hurling insults yes and his lack of of defensiveness because I am so defensive and I mean you, he's in pain it's not like Jesus is sitting and he's had a relaxing day and you yeah. know I mean he's been up for 24 plus hours he still can feel the sting on his back he's thirsty he's he's hungry he's got some nails and <laughs> yeah he's, I mean from my understanding he's naked there are people shouting at him like none mm-hmm. of this is happening in a vacuum and he's quiet I mean he only responds to the person to offer hope yeah. And that, that amazes me. What what about you? What amazes you?
0: That does that, that is pretty amazing. It's it's so cool to see that Jesus is still Jesus even at the worst moment. Um and I don't know if I even ever even thought about it from that perspective. What amazes me about this passage, the criminal who's hanging next to Jesus, who is not insulting Jesus, says, Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man has a very deep view of what the Messiah has come to do. Like when you think about this tension that is found all throughout the gospels of the disciples, not getting what Jesus is here to do, that they think he's come to establish this Davidic kingdom, overthrow the Romans and and do all this sort of thing. And, and to this moment, it seems like the disciples still really aren't completely getting what Jesus has come to do. And yet this criminal, this, this criminal who is being uh, assuming like rightly put on the cross to die has like a deeper understanding of what God is up to. I mean, that's pretty incredible.
1: I think that is a brilliant observation. And especially in contrast to the apostles who just hours before were saying, No, you won't die. Mm-hmm. Um, we refuse this pathway for you. I just, I think that is. And I think it speaks to me of I have to be very careful to say who God won't speak through or what God won't speak through. Because my assumption is, if you knew this criminal, now he has this fascinating honesty, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, you talk about being non-defensive in that regard, he's not defending himself, but Jesus. But my assumption is, if you go back two weeks or a month, whenever he was walking the streets, that he would have been perceived as untrustworthy, that he would have not been invited into the apostleship, you know. Uh, And yet, uh, his awareness for whatever reason, and is that the Holy Spirit? Like I have been told stuff by people who have no respect for God. None. And it still resonates with me as God teaching me through that person. Mm. And that is that is amazing. I I've never thought about that. So what perplexes you about this interaction?
0: Sure. So it's this it's this incredibly famous line. And Jesus answers basically this confession, this this plea from this man that he would be remembered. Truly I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. And like we talked about last week what happens after death it is it is definitely not settled right there's a lot of discussion there's a lot of there's a lot of debate over what exactly happens what it looks like how much of you experience and, and the reason is there's seems to be conflicting reports almost most of the time in the new testament specifically when it talks about a person dying or a person being dead it refers to them being asleep or sleeping in fact Last week when we talked about Lazarus, that's what Jesus said, right? Jesus said, you know, when Jesus said, oh, he's just sleeping. And then the disciples were like, oh, well, he's fine. Just, you know, let him, let him chill out in his nap. And it's like, no, no, he's dead. It's very perplexing. What does this mean for us? What is this idea that this man will be with Jesus that very day in paradise?
1: I totally agree. And this is exactly what perplexes me. Uh, That word today, it can be translated now, which doesn't alter the overall understanding. So if you were to form your paradigm, your perspective on what happens the moment after you die, solely on this passage, you would say, this guy closes his eyes for the last time, and immediately he's in paradise. So that is, that's a description that talks about, and it's alluded to in other ways in the New Testament, um, and also if you translate like take the Septuagint, so you see the Greek of the, of the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, it's alluded to this paradise is this Jewish understanding, and had been for decades, of being with God, of being in this place where you don't have needs, you know, this, this kind of thing. So this is a very direct statement in an otherwise nebulous reference to, to death. Uh, and and you're right, when you look at the New Testament, falling asleep is the term. Uh, it, it goes to, when Jesus goes and sees Jairus' daughter, uh, he he referenced her, you know, they say she's dead, so this is in Mark 5, but in Luke he writes it in a very, a, a, even a clearer way, because they initially, they say, hey, don't bother Jesus, Jairus. Um, because your daughter's already dead. He might have been able to heal her is the implication, but he's not going to be able to raise her from the dead because at that point, there was no, he hadn't raised anybody from the dead. And so uh, they are saying what we would say, hey, don't bother him, you know? And, and I would even think when you brought Jesus to your house, wouldn't you be bringing a spectacle to your house? So somebody's already dead, you're like, mm-hmm. let's not have that, you know, come to our house. When he gets there, he tells the inner circle, basically, he says, hey, I want you to leave. She's not dead. She's asleep. And they all laugh at him. They're out. He raises her. And it says there in Luke chapter 8, verse 55, her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. And when we think of spirit return, that means the spirit had left. So then that we would call that a person has died. And this is what he talks about in First Thessalonians and Acts 7, when when uh, Stephen is killed. His, it says he went to sleep, and yet that's Acts 7, I guess. And then in Acts 8, they say they go bury him. So he's clearly physically dead when, the, when he goes to sleep. And so so I'm doing a funeral uh, tomorrow, and so as I'm talking to the family uh, a day or two ago, uh, we're talking about, you know, it just comes up, where is this person now? Are they sleeping uh, and awaiting because first first thessalonians 4 talks about this idea of of the dead in Christ will be raised first mm-hmm. you know and then those of us who are alive not sleeping will then and and sleeping is used in that context as well later on in the chapter um and so there so which is it so the question is are they right now conscious right right okay conscious with God with God so so yeah if we're, if we're to try try to when you're asleep, so so here's the two views that I work with, and I think they could be one view. It's just limited by my human perspective. One view would be uh, you when a person dies, they're asleep, and then the resurrection happens, and then they're with Christ. Mm-hmm. and And that makes some sense because when a person is sleeping, like when you get awakened, you don't know what time it is. You know, you could have been sleeping for months and months. Now, typically your body cycle wouldn't have that, but you don't know. And so when people, like, for example, if they're induced in a coma, they don't wake up the first time thinking, oh, I've been asleep for eight months or a day, you know? Mm -hmm. They assume they've been sleeping for a few hours, and then they have to take on the shock of if more time passed. And so if people are sleeping in that way, um, then for them, when they wake up, it's been an instant. So from the moment they die until the moment they see Christ, it's a millisecond from their experience, you know? The other alternative, and this would be true—you you could you could make this work with what Jesus says to the to the man on the cross, and it also works with Luke 16, which there's debate—we brought this up last week—with the rich man and Lazarus, because the rich man, they both go to a place, but the man is in suffering, and Lazarus is with Abraham being comforted. Mm-hmm. So what is happening there? That would lead to the thought that once a person is, has died— they immediately go... So so the question is, is the Bible in contradiction to itself? Is
0: it? All right. All right. Yeah, very so,
1: suspenseful. So so here is my thought on this. And, you know, I've had death in my family that was very close. And we'll talk about this more next week. And so I spent an enormous amount of time thinking about this and studying about this. I'm still not an expert. I, but in terms of making this work, plus you do enough funerals, this question comes up again and again and again. My belief... Is, is that when a person dies and they enter that sleep, for them, it is today when they see Jesus. The other wrinkle we have to add to this is, potentially, they are out of time now. Mm. We assess it, oh, I, I won't be able to see them till they get to heaven, and that may be 10 or 50 years from now. But for them, it's in the same day they die, they are seeing Jesus, and we're being
0: raised. Yeah, so th- time, time is a... Time is something that God creates, right, in the first seven days of creation. Time is not—God is not limited by time, right? So God exists outside of time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And see, this is a construct. When he says back
1: in Genesis, they had the first evening and the first morning, the first day, that creation point is the first marking of time, and time is created for us, and, and I mean, to even think about saying this sentence without time is, how does that work? Like when we get to heaven
0: mm-hmm.
1: and being... I mean, we talk about eternal like we have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of time. There is no time. I mean, how do you even think about that? Yeah, so here is a way to say it that will provoke our thinking. For the person that dies, not only are they in heaven... But to them, I'm in heaven, hmm. though living, because of that time dynamic. So for me in time, let's say God comes back tomorrow, Christ comes back tomorrow, and so I am raised, you know, I, the dead in Christ, so I'm experiencing the dead in Christ, but th- the idea is when Christ comes back, time stops. There's no need for time. We move into eternity. That That's the way I understand it, and if, and if you, the listener, or if you, Connor— No. Hmm. Well, wait a minute. What about this verse? And it says time extends into eternity in some level. This idea of when the, when the trumpet sounds final
0: age. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just time stops. Now, if you have a who knows what our listeners think in terms of rapture and a thousand year reign, I have an assumption that would need another drill down that I'm not ready certainly to do, or maybe never would be ready is okay. So is there this rapture a thousand year reign? I don't think that way that's mm-hmm. my reading of scripture don't think that way so my thinking is when christ comes that is a single event um that in time and then um and then basically everyone would experience the judgment and the judgment isn't it's in the blink of an eye. You know, it's not like we we go through this big trial and Jesus is there as our lawyer and our you know judge. Dream, I feel bailiff. so bad
0: for people with last names that started with Z. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so, yeah. so this is interesting. You said something um, that you didn't say it like as a fact, but it could be the case for people who are in heaven that they're existing outside of time and, and therefore we're already there with them are there verses i'm trying to i'm trying to go back to my mind are there verses that talk about um being able to petition people who are already about people who are already dead petitioning for you petitioning um god for you in prayer yeah so
1: so there are two things that come up for me when you when you mention this idea Mm -hmm. Uh, one is luke 16 where back to the the rich man and Lazarus. And what is happening there is the rich man realizing he cannot leave his torment, petitions for someone to go back and talk to his brothers. Now the question with this whole passage is: Is this parabolic, or is this real? Because he tells that story and the parable of the fruit manager, and the one that would say it was it was real is saying no. You leave earth immediately after death, and you go and you're with Abraham. You know, or at least you're in comfort or you're in torment immediately, like before even the resurrection of the dead, you know? Mm -hmm. And the one that says it's a parable, they would say, you know, in context, Luke 16 is about Jesus speaking to the Pharisees' view on wealth and how, whereas they saw wealth as a signal of being closer to God and Jesus saying that's not true— and that's why he talks about the parable of the shrewd manager, which is about wealth, and this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's much more of, of are the rich entitled to better things from, Jesus, from God, mm-hmm. that he's answering there in Luke 16. The other thing is where Paul makes the, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about uh, being baptized for the dead, you know, as if you can do something. That's a little bit of a flip from what you're saying. It's, sure. us, it's us thinking, Do we have an, do we have impact on those who have already died? You know, and of mm-hmm. course, if you yeah, know yeah, much yeah. about Catholicism, way way back, where they bought indulgences, where if you you paid money, you could bless people, or you could be baptized for the dead. I think there's some views on Christianity in a very general sense that that you're baptized for the dead. Uh, Paul's reference there, man, it's very cryptic. My sense is he's saying he he's speaking in a very tumultuous to a very tumultuous audience in mm-hmm. Corinth. And they're doing a lot of practices and he's making an appeal for because people were saying resurrection, it doesn't count, it's not gonna happen, you know, it's not real. And he's saying, Well, then why are you being resurrected for the dead? I don't think he's advocating being resurrection for the dead. I think I think he's reasoning with the real people, which is why we you struggle when you make epistles a letter complete doctrine. Oh, and yeah. and don't take into account he's talking to real people with real misunderstandings here and Nobody is more misunderstanding the gospel than the church of Corinth. So I don't think that's a that's a strong enough verse. So sure. I don't get the sense in Scripture that the people in heaven are having an impact on the people mm-hmm. on earth. So so I I don't I don't let me be more specific. I don't know of any evidence in scripture that says my grandfather, my grandmother, all my grandparents who are dead, that they they can make an appeal for me. Now, when you go into Revelation, you have the dead praying, Mm -hmm. you know, now now they're saying how long, you know, they're not, they're not saying, hey, will you take care of Jason on earth or whoever their corollary loved one would be. And you have to be very careful to take something in Revelation and make it a literal,
0: uh, a literal thing you know because he states it it's a vision you can't fool me i've read left behind um so <laughs> for me this is an area that i am just i'm a learner i have no settled like I, I don't feel like i have like a great handle on this so i'm let me talk through this so the basic understanding that i would have received that i've read about received over the course of my of my young life is the process the, the main the process is you die there's Heaven, right where you go and you're with God immediately. Then there is the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, and God makes new the earth. There's the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, and then that's that you know that's our ultimate final place that we find ourselves. Um, and so what I'm hearing, hearing what you say, what you see in Scripture, once you die, in effect, it's still the same sort of thing. You're still immediately in the presence of God, but you kind of skip that middle phase or not that you skip it, but that's what, that's what you see the script, scripture saying.
1: Right. And to be clear for those experiencing time, which would be the living, you know, mm-hmm. they the conscious, yeah, yes. the conscious, those who are conscious, those that are still, let's say trapped in time. Their perception is my loved one is not suffering. They're asleep awaiting the judgment day. Mm-hmm. But to those that are outside of time, that has already happened because they're outside of time. Sure, um, and that's and and we don't correlate now, I am admittedly speaking of things I don't know because I've never existed outside of time. One of the reasons I think this is when Jesus is up on the mount that we call Mount of Transfiguration, it wasn't called that before he was transfigured, of course, <laughs> but when he's up on this mountain and he's got you know Peter, James, and John there, and Moses and Elijah show up, it says that they are advising him, they are discussing his exodus, his departure, Jesus. Mm. And you would think from a human perspective, well, you know, Elijah had a, a unique departure where he was taken up in this chariot, you know, of fire. And, of course, Moses had an interesting departure, both both physically. He departed Egypt, you know, so he had that experience. And then he died, and, and God put him to death, if you will. You know, there's not a, a physical thing that caused a death. He just went up on a mountain, and he dies. So they have interesting deaths. But number one, Moses and Elijah are not um, number. Well, number one, they are recognized as Moses and Elijah. Like they didn't lose their identity, and that's not really in our vein of conversation. But they still sure. have their identity. We know there will be perfected, certainly from Philippians three, that they will have a glorious body, like Jesus's glorious raised resurrected body. Um, but their identity was still intact. Furthermore. Who are they to advise Jesus based on their life experience? But if you think of a perfected Moses and a perfected Elijah, man, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, one could easily make the case, well, the whole point of Moses and Elijah to be there is for to set up the interaction where God says, don't listen to the prophet, don't listen to the, law- the lawgiver. Listen to Jesus; he's superior. Now, not to say devalue everything they say, but the idea that he is superior, and I believe that true too. And this is the interesting thing; maybe even the bigger point is that God. Uh, that just this just occurred to me. Why does God not give us a book on death?
0: You know, why wouldn't that seem to be a big, <laughs> well, <you laughs> insight know, to give us? It's one of those funny things. You know, you were talking earlier about the letters, right, and and how it's it's very dangerous to. Um, you know, to not read them as letters, not read them as half of a conversation, um, you know, two thousand years right. ago. I think we have this tendency to look at the way that God sets up scripture is really it's kind of upsetting at some points, right? Because the way that the way that a lot of people have been handed their faith and handed the Bible is, hey, here's a list of rules, here's what you're supposed to do, do exactly these things that it says. Um and, and you're golden. And that's just not what the Bible is, right? It's a collection of stories written over the course of thousands of years by many different individuals inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they're written to people who aren't exactly us. Now, through the gifting of the Holy Spirit, we get the benefit of them and, and they help us and they help generation after generation after generation. But because of who we are and the faults that we have as humans we so desperately wish that a lot of the mystery was taken out of it that there was a you know here's the thing we have tried to make the bible into a rule book and that has left many people leaving the church because they can't imagine they can't imagine a god like that but oftentimes even in our own hearts after we get past this idea of the bible being a rule book we still long for it in a certain way, not recognizing that if the Bible was strictly a rule book, we would eventually rebel and, and leave almost certainly anyways.
1: Right. Yeah, God's not inviting us into a solution. God's inviting us into a mystery. Now, Jesus is the solution, mm-hmm. but he's not m- inviting us to more certainty. I mean, find me a person in the Bible that that the deeper they got into Christ, their life just cleaned right up. It just got so certain and predictable, and I know what's going to happen, but we long for predictability. We long to know exactly what we're getting into. And I mean, I can't bring this to bear enough. When God says, my ways are not your ways, do you know what he means? He means his ways are never going to be your ways. Mm -hmm. If you understand what we would perceive as just more than any other human being on earth has understood about God or the Word of God, his ways will still not be your ways. He will still be beyond us. And and this is where, where I was kind of going with, why didn't he give us this book called Death? Or we can make case, why don't you have a, a book on how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife? That would have been really helpful. Yeah, But he's not inviting us into our own ability to save ourselves or understand it. He's inviting us into an opportunity to trust him. And that's what you see in the Bible. It's neither a rule book nor even a love letter. I've heard it compared to that, though there are rules and there are parts, obviously, in expression of love. This is a historical account of him interacting with terribly flawed people and him loving them. So in that regard, his love letter, but not in the sense of of man you'll be so sure of his love you can be, but he's also inviting you to trust him when it seems unloving.
0: You I mean, how can oh. you look at some of these stories and think, "Oh, that's an ultimate, but he let so, that person die." So for this is this is really fascinating. So if you grew up in any sort of church Like with any sort of church background and you went on a retreat or you went to church camp, you might have experienced a situation where it's at the end of the week and you are given cards to write to different people at this retreat. Or a different church camp. Have you experienced something like this, Jason? Yeah, it's a fairly common thing. I've experienced it many, many times in different, many different contexts where you have to look around the room and you see, oh, there's Jim. I spent the week with Jim and I have a prompt of saying something positive or I have something something loving to say to this person. And it's usually always really helpful and if the people participate well, it's really meaningful and you get all, you get all this feedback back and you begin to read, okay, this is what this person loves about me. This is what they, the, what they saw on me this week that they loved. And I don't know if you ever had the situation where somebody, somebody was completely honest with you about what they loved about you and it made you uncomfortable. Um, where somebody said something, somebody noticed something about you that you didn't even know about yourself. And they said they loved you for that thing it sends you it kind of knocks you off your guard and it makes you feel really imbalanced and i think i i think what's amazing about scripture what's amazing about the bible is it's this it's this collection of books written to people who aren't us but yet have a timeless nature that pertain and affect us and it's the ongoing part of the Bible. like you could read the bible 24 hours a day over and over and over and again, and you're guaranteed in five years when you read it again, you're going to have different takeaways, you're going to have different thoughts. And it's this eternal nature of what Scripture is that is the reason it's so timeless for us.
1: Yeah, and I want to be super clear, especially for people that might not know us personally, whether you agree or not, listener, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. We believe every word is inspired. We believe it's God-breathed me, and it's useful for everything we experience. But I read it with a biased lens every time because I'm a biased person. And learning, one way to think about learning is me giving up my bias. It is me saying, here's what I thought about, in this case, God or Jesus, And now I'm looking at the scripture and I'm seeing it with fresh eyes and I'm like, oh wait, that's not what's happening here. Mm -hmm. I've had that happen a thousand times and I anticipate it happening a thousand more. And here's the thing, when that happens a thousand more, guess what? I'll still be a learner. I'll still, I never graduate from disciple, from learner, and I'm always there to be
0: taught. Well, it's interesting that you say that, specifically related around this discussion of of sleep. I still have this idea of kind of what I was taught. And as, as we talk through this, a lot of what you say makes sense and I can see it, but still in my mind, I'm still, I, I I don't know. I don't know if that's right. I don't know if that's true. And, and there, there's a pull in my heart because you're going against something that I was told my entire life. I mean, that can't possibly be right. That can't possibly be the way that it is. And part of my work is recognizing maybe I'm not a hundred percent there with Jason in this moment, um and maybe maybe i will get there maybe i won't ever get there maybe jason will realize say he's completely wrong and maybe he'll be completely right but this is all a part of the journey right this is all part of what we're trying to do here
1: that's right and here's what needs to be said by me i could be wrong (laughs) i may be wrong it's predictable that i'm wrong Uh, and this this is the spirit of this podcast and why for me at least i decided to say yeah connor let's Let's do this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because most of the time when I hear from people, they're speaking from what they, man, they just studied it until they couldn't study anymore. They drilled down. These are their conclusions. And I think that's great. But but if you follow a person, if they are truly a learner, they'll write that book. And then two years later, they need to write a follow-up mm-hmm. where they've adjusted that. Because again, no matter how expert the expert expertist is, right, that didn't make any sense, but you get it. Yeah. Um, they're still, their ways aren't God's ways. He's got more to teach. And this dynamic of the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth, I don't think that's a one-time thing, and now we have the Bible and it's locked tight. The Word of God is living and active, or it's not. But if it is, if God's right in writing that, the Hebrew writer's right in writing that, then it's gonna teach us new. Now, part of that will credit to, man, I've grown and now I can understand it. You know, God's taught me these other ways and now the Word comes alive. But I think even if you didn't change at all, you could read just one verse, and God would teach you something new through that one verse um, every day, something new. The challenge is we assume we know, so we unknowingly take off our learner hat, yes. and we say, oh, yeah, that's the verse I know.
0: Well, here's, here's the really complicated part that I've found in my walk with God is there are things that I think— think like really big things that opinions and beliefs I held about God a year or two ago that I don't think are correct anymore. I don't think they line up with scripture anymore, but I can look back at those and go, okay, you know, maybe I needed to believe that specific thing about God at that time. Yes. And that's when you really get into some crazy stuff to go, okay, there was a reason that I, I went through that stage of, of thinking that and guaranteed, you know, a year from now, six months from now, I am going to have things that I believe now that I'm going to be convinced because of Scripture, are, are not the correct view of things, and yet it's still okay, right? It's this—it's maintaining this perspective of I'm always a learner. I'm always trying to get closer to what God is calling me to and who God is, and recognizing that that's just gonna be that's gonna be my entire life. Yeah, and there's beauty in that. So redirecting back into this concept of what exactly happens after. After death, the current idea, right, of there's the he- there's heaven, there's the intermediate intermediate place, and then you have the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth, and you're presenting this. I'm not going to call it new idea because it's not new, but new to maybe you listener that um, the intermediate place, this the sleeping is a outside of time experience, and that people are still. Immediately after death in the presence of God, but it's at the resurrection. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so the
1: only, yeah, twist it. the The only thing I would add is there is an intermediate place. Yeah, but the people that have died they don't experience that intermediate place.
0: Okay. So the question is, do you see? Like, right, thinking about God and, and stuff is really good, but do you see a benefit to this new perspective as opposed to this other perspective?
1: Yeah, so here's what I'd say is the implication of this that would be beneficial. It has everything to do with our fear. It has everything to do with our trust. What I, I think I should be asking myself, what encourages me to trust God and what what tears down that trust in God? And one of those things is... I, now again, I don't think wishful thinking is what I'm espousing. I'm trying to take the scripture and say how how can you have sleep and then how can he be in paradise the same day? I'm I'm trying to I believe the word of God is complementary though it may not be obvious immediately how it's complementary, and so I'm merging the passage we started with with this idea: the dead in Christ will rise first, and this kind of thing. And their insistence and the repetition of this person is not dead; they're asleep and he says that because he wants to give us something we can understand, that when I'm asleep, I'm completely unaware of time. And when I wake up, I don't know if half an hour passed or 50 years passed. I just don't know because, to me, it's a millisecond. It's I don't remember exactly when I went to sleep and when I wake up. You know, this I have to go outside myself to say how much time passed. And so that, to me, makes it – it removes the uncertainty – that I feel like when, when we get into these discussions where we're taking, especially when we're taking things out of Revelation and making these these references, which John himself says, this is a vision, and if you know anything about visions, they're not exactly what the people experience when they're living out those visions when they come to pass. And so that that, in, that just brings to mind, oh my goodness, well what about this? We've, I feel like theology may have created things to fear that God didn't want us to fear at all. That there's this certainty that number one, the question isn't, oh man, what does God still want me to understand before I'm saved? It's, will I trust God now? Will I choose to trust Him with what little or how great I know? Will I choose to trust Him? To me, that makes it a lot certain, a lot more certain about what is it I need? Because once you start thinking, now I'm even going outside of how I was raised, once you start thinking, well, how can I be those that are, are raised up? And that, you know, Matthew 23 talks about, you know, there's a person on the roof and there's a person inside and one will be taken and this kind of thing. That's a whole nother discussion, but it, but it ends up here in the sense that, oh my goodness, what if I'm left behind and where's this thousand year reign and these kind of things. And I just think the bulk of the Bible does not point to that. The bulk of the Bible points to you have a death, uh, there's one judgment, uh, and that and that you're and that's outside of time. So that's mm-hmm. how it speaks to me.
0: Sure, I think what you said there is, is really important. You you talked about the Bible. It'd be really good if it had a book on death. There's a reason that there isn't like there's a reason that we're we're piecing this together and that we're sometimes struggle and people who are really smart disagree. It's because the bulk of the Bible is really concerned with what we're doing here and now. And what we're supposed to be doing here now is helping build and further the kingdom of God that Jesus established here on earth. And man, I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. And these kind of be my closing thoughts and we'll jump to your closing thoughts, Jason. Growing up, I was taught or I inferred just from what was taught around me or what was believed around me that the reason that you believed in Jesus was so that you could get to heaven so that you could experience paradise. And that is just not the thrust of the Bible. The thrust of the Bible, one, you don't get Jesus for the benefits. You get Jesus for Jesus. But secondarily to that, the purpose for his church is not so that we can convert a whole bunch of people who get to spend, you know, spend time in paradise. The purpose is to bring his kingdom to bear here and now and for more people to experience the freedom and the fruit and the love of Jesus. And so that would just be my closing thought on this specific subject of i don't know any of this and i man especially if you want to start talking revelation and whether you're pre-tribulation post-tribulation all that fun stuff i'm going to get lost in that conversation it's important and good stuff and it's fun to learn about but i think it's much, like we can't get lost in the weeds of what will happen and Lose focus on what is happening here and now.
1: I would want to close with what you just said was is gold, and and I think church history speaks to somebody fixating on one subject and missing the bulk. Uh, Let me let me reset. I think the mistakes in church history is where you focus on one verse that comes alive to you, and that's a beautiful thing. But then it becomes the whole, and I think that's the challenge. the The overall thrust of Jesus' life is: Will you? participate me? Will you trust me? And what you said is exactly right. The fact that there isn't this, hey, before we go on, you have to understand death. You have to, you know, that most of what we know about death comes up parabolically, where Jesus is making a totally different point. He's not even talking about death, you know? Like, even in the sheep and the goats, what's he trying to prove there? His thrust there is, how are you treating people? Are you are you taking care of people? And do you understand when you take care of people, you take care of Jesus? And, and this is an expression. It has to be an expression of our trust. If we don't have trust, all the service in the world is useless if we're not trusting in God with that. But Jesus isn't scared of death. It's the opposite. He refers to it almost casually. Like, like most of even what we're talking about, it's almost a side issue. Mm-hmm. You know, It's much more about his interaction
0: with the prisoner— than it is about him going a deep dive into what paradise is. It's like when we're talking right now, when we were talking about what we we're going to talk about doing this series on death, I carried a lot of anxious energy because people have some really strong opinions on this. And this could offend some people. But for Jesus, I mean, Jesus knows it all, but there, there he doesn't carry that same weight or same energy.
1: Yeah, this is like a lot of things with Jesus. You would think you would say, okay, before we go on, you have to get this. He's not even interested. like he never sits down and says, "Here's exactly what you need to be anticipating. almost everything we have is a is a side it, it's part of the the fabric of his storytelling, not the point he's making. And so That's then right. and and next week, what I do want to talk about is the idea of 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 just the dynamic, not that we can describe what the new heavens and the new earth are. you know we we can you know, reference people and they say this and it makes sense to me, But more is why is he not afraid of this, you know? And what can we learn? And then, secondarily, is how do you help people that are afraid of it? Mm. How, how do you walk beside them? What does Jesus give us for the person that doesn't believe in God at all, or doesn't believe in death, or believes in death but is scared to death? Um, you know, I, I think those are those are important things that we can talk about in our framing of what it what it is to be amazed and perplexed by walking with this Almighty God and His Son Jesus
0: thank you for listening to the amazing complex podcast next week we'll wrap up our series on death we so appreciate you listening this has been a huge blessing for us this has been beneficial to all sorts of people this is something that jason and i did by ourselves not talking to people and the fact that we get to do something that we love and that we would be doing anyways and it's a blessing to you uh, it's just incredible we'd be so blessed if you would consider sharing our podcast as well as just leaving a review on apple itunes i don't know why i said apple itunes that's silly leaving a review on itunes or whatever source you get your podcast from it would just be such a blessing for us we love you we hope you're well grace and peace and love